You're listening to a sermon from Harvest Bible Chapel, Niagara. We believe in unapologetic preaching, unashamed adoration of Jesus, unceasing prayer, unafraid witness, and uncommon community. If you have yet to do so, we would love to have you join us for worship in God's Word on Sunday mornings. For more information, visit us online at harvestniagara.ca. Thanks for listening. Amen, amen. Let's bow in a word of prayer as we open up the Word of God this morning together. Father, Father, it's a privilege this morning to call you Father. Thank you for loving us, for never turning your face away from us. As we study the judges, we realize that we are just like the Israelites, so fickle and so frail, and yet your love for us, for your children, those who have turned to you by faith and repentance, God, your love for us remains constant. That knowledge this morning is too wonderful for us. And so we come here, God, today eager to meet with you and you alone. Father, we've listened to ourselves speak all week long. We've heard the messages of the world being bombarded into our souls. This morning, Father, we came to hear from one person. We want to hear your voice. We want to hear your word. We desire your message today, God. So we're eager we're ready. Meet with us today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. I encourage you to uh, take your seats this morning and turn with me in your Bibles to Judges chapter 6. Uh, Judges 6, 7, and 8 we are going to cover today. And so uh, it's going to be a, a full service this morning. Uh, if you don't have a Bible with you, please uh, put your hand up in the air. We'd love to get you a copy of God's Word to follow along uh, with us. Uh, Judges chapter 6, 7, and 8 is very easy to find. Uh, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus. Uh, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges. So right at the beginning of your Bibles, looking at chapter 6 to 8 this morning. And I'm really excited about this text, actually. It's one of my favorite stories in the whole Bible. Not just in Judges, but in the whole Bible. Now, it is, it is so inspiring and so encouraging. And uh, it's a study of the person and the life of Gideon. And as far as Judges go, Gideon was the misfit judge. When you think of judges or kings or rulers, you think of big and bold and brazen. You're thinking gladiator. You're thinking the Marlboro man for you older people like me. But yet Gideon is the exact opposite of these things. Gideon is fearful and he's fickle and he's fragile and he's frail and in some ways futile. And yet this is the man that God chose to deliver Israel, so opposite of our notion of hero or king. It's Gideon. Put Gideon in a lineup of superheroes, and you'd be like, which one of these does not belong? You'd be like, uh, Gideon, for sure. And yet at the end, we'll see that Gideon is a conquering man, a, a man that is after God's own heart. And why do I like Gideon so much? I like him so much because he's just like you and I. Of all the heroes I can relate to, it is Gideon. Like, he's my, he's my man. He's the guy that, like, well, I can't do it, I can't do it. But Gideon did, so surely if God can use Gideon, God can use me. Ever felt, ever in your life, a little bit inferior, a little bit insignificant, a little bit incapable of doing anything for the Lord? Any, anyone here? Yeah, me too. 
And so this is why Gideon is such a powerful word for us today. And so we're just going to dive into the story. You can expect 6, 7, 8. We're going to cover a lot of ground today. Uh, so we're going to dive right in. Gideon, the, the reluctant hero, yet the conquering hero because of God and God being on his side. Now, first thing you can write down your notes this morning, if you're taking notes, I encourage you to because there's going to be a lot shared today. Write this down. Here we go again. Sin dominates. Isn't that the story of Judges? Here we go again. Sin, sin dominates. Gideon, the fifth of the 12, 12 Judges, fifth verse, same as the first. Look how, look how Judges 6 starts. The people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And you almost skip over it because we read it so many times in the book of Judges. The people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord gave them into the hand of Midian for seven years. This is the cycle of Judges. It's... it's God rescues them, the Israelites, and they fall into apostasy and then, and then bondage and they cry out to the Lord and he rescues them again. There's this cycle happening here. This time it's uh, at the hand of the Midianites. God allows, get this, God allows his people because he loves them and because he disciplines his people. Every good parent disciplines their kids. He allows them into the hands this time of the Midianites. This is a strange uh, occurrence to the, the nation of Israel because in, in uh, Exodus chapter 2, who's helping Israel escape from Egyptian, the Egyptians? The Midianites. So obviously God rearranged something in their hearts for his own purposes and now they're opposing them and it's not a, it's not a political opposition here in, in Judges chapter 6. It's an economic opposition. If you, I'm going to summarize some of this for you for sake of time but if you read the first uh, six verses, what's happening here is Midian, verse 2, is overpowering Israel, so much so that the people of Israel are hiding in the dens, in the mountains, in the caves, in the strong, in strongholds for what's happening here. It's an economic oppression. Every time Israel would get their crops up and ready, Midian was like, hey, free crops. So they'd come in and they'd, they'd like bullies, they'd push the Israelites away. The Israelites were being overpowered. They were fearful. In fact, it says here that, that Midian was as numerous as the locusts. So we're not talking to a few little people sneaking out and stealing their stuff. Like they were being overpowered. They were being overrun. And if you know anything about locusts, which we don't in our land, but here's the picture that the, 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 the scriptures are telling us of Midian versus Israel. It's like they're being swarmed by this, this a swarm of locusts. Look what, a, isn't that gross? Apparently Nathaniel, the guy who does graphics, I kind of threw up in my mouth a little bit when he sent me these pictures of locusts. And that's what it's supposed to do. That's what it's supposed to do. This isn't a good thing. And so locusts, and, and the swarm of locusts, look over there on your right, that's a swarm of locusts between 40 and 80 million locusts in a square kilometer in a swarm. So it's not a small oppression here. Like they come out to get their crops, they swarm them, and they'd be running for their lives and trying to run away. But they couldn't run away. They couldn't, they couldn't, there's no place to run. There's no place to hide. They were paralyzed. It's sort of reminiscent of the Holocaust days when the Jews were forced underground. They were underground trying to just survive. Paralyzed nation, nowhere to run, nowhere to hide, overwhelmed and under-resourced. Where do they look? Where do they look? It seems they always get to the point where they're finally like, okay, we can't do it on our own. We look to God. Finally, you're like, finally you're looking to God. Where were you, what were you doing for the last seven years? But they get to this point where there's like, it's unbearable. So where do you look? They finally look up. And they cry to God for help yet again. At least some sensibility kicks in at some points. Look at verse 6. And the people of Israel cried out to help of the Lord. They get to this place where there's nowhere else to look, so they look up. They send the SOS to God. Just a little side note here as we study this text. If this is the way you plan to live your life for the Lord, it's just a bad plan. I'm going to do my own thing, and I'm going to 
fight my own fight. I'm going to run my own race. And when things get really hard, then I'll look to God. I just want to encourage you, that's a really bad plan. That leads to a frustrating and futile Christian life, not one of joy and abundance that God has planned for us. It's a daily encounter with God. Uh, but let's learn from Israel. Let's not follow their path. They finally cried out to the Lord. And so we know what happens when, when God's people cry out to him, right? No matter how we got there or where we are, God will always, what? when God's people cry out to him, God will always answer his people. Always. Here's verse 7. Here's the first time this happens in the book of Judges. So this time when the people cried out to the Lord on account of the Midianites, usually the Lord says what? Don't worry, I love you. I'll send a rescuer. This time he sends an unnamed prophet to actually give them a bit of a tongue lashing, a bit of a lecture before he sends the hero. It's almost like he's like, all right, let's make this plain. Let's make this plain and simple. You have to understand why you've gotten to where you've gotten. If you haven't figured it out before, now I'm going to intervene. Here's what's really going on. He tells them, hey, Israel, Don't forget, don't forget, look what he says here in verse 8. Don't forget the God of Israel. He is your God. He led you up from Egypt and brought you out of the house of bondage. And I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians, the hand of all who oppressed you, of which were many, and drove them up before you and gave you their land. And I said to you, I am the Lord your God. Don't forget, I'm still on your side. I did all these things for you. I am the Lord your God. You shall not fear the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But, in other words, this is all a result of the simple reality that you've not obeyed my voice. Don't be mistaken. These aren't just like haphazard circumstances, Israel. This is all happening because you have not obeyed my voice. Remember the covenants of God? They're being reminded of the covenants of God in in the Old Testament. The one covenant, you'll be my children forever. That's unconditional. That's for good. That's for real for all those who turn to Jesus by faith. But all, a lot of the other covenants aren't this automatic, you're going to be blessed. They're, if you obey me, you will find blessing. If you disobey me, this is of the word of God, you will not find blessing, but you'll find, here's the word it uses in scripture, curses. So the prophets remind them, like, hey, this... It's not God who's doing this. Before you get mad and shake your fist at God, it's the fact that you have not obeyed my voice. It's almost like God's in this moment giving them a chance to repentance. What does God desire most from us? Our hearts, our lives, our whole beings. And so he, he, he gives them an opportunity to repent. Like, here's the deal. I, I think what God's hoping for is be like, oh, yes, God, I repent. I want to turn from that. I want to turn to you. But there's nothing. Maybe they're in such a hard place they couldn't hear the voice. Maybe they were so overwhelmed they couldn't fully process. And so at this point, here's what I'm thinking as I'm reading this text as just a regular guy, not your pastor. I'm thinking, okay, this must be the end of the line then, right? Like this time God's not going to deliver for sure. I don't see any repentance here. I don't see any heart to turn back to the Lord. Ever thought that sometimes? You're like, where's scripture going? Have you ever read the story before? But yeah, look at the heart of your God. Nothing from Israel, but God, even in their, whatever you want to call it, God still intervenes because he loves them so very much as he loves us. This is the reality of Israel. Sin dominates. Again, I can relate to Israel. I'm sure you can too. Doesn't it feel like our lives sometimes are up and down like a toilet seat? Up, down, up, down, doing good, doing bad, doing good, doing bad, obedient, disobedient. 
don't know about you, but I get frustrated with myself as I go through this cycle. And here's a good reality to remind us that even though we go through this cycle, we will go through this cycle. You're not a good Christian if all of a sudden you're like, you don't have no more, no more of these realities in your life. You're actually a good Christian if, if, if you realize that God still rescues you from all the times that you fail. But here's the reality you can I be encouraged with. Even when we get to that place where we're like, man, the toilet seat's been down for a long time and it's not going up. God still loves you. You getting this? God still loves you. And he will intervene when you cry out to him in spite of you and despite you. Because that's our God. Listen as the story goes on. Here we go again, sin dominates, but wait for it. Point number two, God delivers again. Wait for it, God delivers again. And you could probably write, and again, and again, and again, and again, and again, and again. But we'll stick with one because that just seems to be across the ages, right? God delivers again. Look at God's response, the call of Gideon. Now we're gonna have to speed up a little bit for time's sake. We'll be here till two o'clock. The call of Gideon. God's choice for his mission, this rescue mission, not the guy you'd expect, verses 11 to 24. Now the angel of the Lord came and sat under the terebinth at Ophrah, which belonged to Joash the Abizrite, while his son Gideon was out beating wheat in the wine press to hide it from the Midianites. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to this, The Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. And Gideon said to him, please, sir, if the Lord is with us, then why has all this happened to us? General question that we all have and go through hard times, isn't it? Well, if God's with us, then what's all this about? And where are all these wonderful deeds that our father recounted to us? A little bit bitter, a little bit cynical, a little bit faithless, don't you think? Did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt, but now the Lord has forsaken us and given us into the hand of Midian? Before we get too down on Gideon, I think we all get there when we get to those hard times. But yeah, look, the Lord turned to him and said this, go in this might of yours to save Israel from the hand of Midian. Do I not send you? This is such an interesting text because at first it seems all innocent and simple, but you have to understand the nuances of this to understand the, the vast significance of this. So here's Gideon, this random guy in the middle of nowhere. He's actually uh, threshing wheat in a wine press, which is not normal for that day. Um, and if you look at the pictures on the screen here, there's um, on the, the left is the wine press. It's sunken underground where they'd mash their grapes and push them into that little hole there and, and get their wine. It's, it's a hidden place. It's a, a place of protection where the threshing the threshing floor was up in, uh, up in the open, as you see on the right. And so they would thresh their wheat so the wind could come and take the chaff away and they could keep their, their wheat and their grain. And so here's Gideon uh, threshing wheat in the most obscure of places. Why? Because he's terrified of the Midianites. Because he's fearful. He doesn't want to be seen. Not exactly the guy you'd think that the mighty warrior that God would choose to deliver his people. The angel of the Lord comes to him and says, hey, come on, mighty man of valor. And it's almost like you hear the heavens snickering at this point. Mighty man of valor, are you kidding me? Look at the guy. God has a sense of humor, I'm pretty sure of it. Even Gideon's like, like what are you doing talking to me? Like, I, who do you think I am? He says in this text a little later, he's like, I'm the lowest of the low. I'm like, I'm the lowest of the tribe of Israel, the lowest of my clan. Like, like really, what are you talking to me for? And I, I'm not even sure God's with us anymore. All these great stories, God's kind of become like Santa Claus to me. Like, oh, it's good for you, but it's just a myth. Why are you coming to me? But look at what, look what the angel says. The angel says to him very clearly, go in this might of yours and save Israel from the hand of Midian, the Midianites. Do I not send you? Like, am I not 
telling you this? Gideon's response, but I'm weak of the weakest. And he says again, but that might be true. He doesn't refute that. He's like, no, you're not. You're a good swell guy. Come on, you can do it. But I will be with you, and you shall strike the Midianites as one man, but I will be with you. And so translation, angel, I get it, Gideon, but you're the one who's going to wear the sea. God's calling you to be captain of his team to deliver the championship to them. Like a good man of faith, Gideon's like, okay, let's do it, go after it. Then he's like, uh-uh, he's, he's not like that at all. He's like, okay, just wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. If this is true, just stay right here, angel. This is pretty bold. They like, stay right here, don't go, don't go anywhere. He runs and gets this, like, this meat and this, this bread, the unleavened bread, a goat and unleavened bread, and this brings the meat and the pot still boiling and the bread, and he comes back to the angel, and the angel, he wasn't instructed to do that. The angel's like, okay, I can work with this. And so put your meat on the altar and the bread, put the boiling stew or whatever, the pot on top, and uh, we'll confirm this for you. And all of a sudden, he, he does that. He puts everything on the altar, pours the broth on top, and what happens? <laughs> a flame. Like, out of the rock, a flame. Like, it started on fire. That, again, are you with me? That's not normal. Pour water on anything, it generally doesn't, like, light up. Getting at this moment, look how slow he is. Getting at this moment, he's like, ah, I think I've seen the angel of the Lord. You're like, you think? You think? And this is the calling of Gideon. Verse 16, verse 16. Go and do it, Gideon. Get after it. I will be with you. Look what happens at the end of this little text here. Verse 22, alas, O Lord God, for now I have seen the angel of the Lord face to face. I now have seen the angel of the Lord face to face. The Lord said to him, peace be to you. Do not fear, you shall not die. Why would he say that? Because here's the reality, that God is a consuming fire. As he demonstrated with the offering. And the reality is that because Gideon encountered the Lord face to face, he should be consumed by the fire of God. But God's grace to him says, you are still alive. Then Gideon built him, peace be to you, do not fear for you shall not die. That's good news, don't you think? Gideon built an altar. This is showing the grace of the Lord. The Lord is peace, get this. Although God is a consuming fire, the God that we serve is also the Lord of peace. To this day, it still stands. Just unpacking the story for you before we get to the application. That's the first part. God's choice for his mission, not the guy you'd expect. I love how the scriptures, it's never the guy you'd expect. It's never the super Christians. It's never like, that guy's got it all together. It's never those guys. It's always regulars like you and I. Look at the first mission that God calls him to after he confirms and affirms that Gideon's the guy. God's boot camp God's boot camp is in the next few verses, solidifies allegiance to God alone. So God says, okay, get in, you're the guy, and so here's your first mission. Again, I'm going to summarize this for you. Your first mission is to go and grab your father's uh, bull, the second bull, seven years old, very clear, precise instructions of the Lord, pull down the altar of Baal that your father has and cut down the Asherah that is beside it and build an altar to the Lord your God on the top of the stronghold here. God's okay, Gideon, you're the guy, it's for sure, here's your first task. Go into your father's house, this is a big deal in this day, go and basically diss your dad, the patriarchal society, this wasn't acceptable, tear down his altar to Baal, 
Interesting that um, his dad's name means Yahweh is strong, and yet what's he got on his property? All this worship of other gods. Go down and rip down his altar to Baal, this cultural pagan worship site. Take down the Asherah, Asherah pole beside it, which is the, um, another goddess of the day, the goddess of Asherah, who they were, whom they were worshiping, probably worshiping Baal and Asherah to try to bring the, the reality of economic growth to them. And here's the reality of what they were doing. They were worshiping God, believing Yahweh is strong, but worshiping all these other gods at the same time. Oh, no, I worship God, but they got all these idols as well in their lives. I worship God and I worship God plus. God's like, this isn't going to happen. You can't be delivered from without until you're delivered from within is basically the message he's saying here. So Gideon does this. Like he's putting it all on the line. He takes 10 of his servants. He goes to his, his father's property. He starts, he starts taking down. He rips down the, the Baal altar. But he did it at night because he was so afraid of what was going to happen. Takes down the Asherah pole and made another altar. He, he made an altar with those goods and made an altar to God. And in the morning when everyone woke up, obviously somebody had been in the town that day with some revel rousing. Everyone's looking around like, who did it? Who did it? Who did it? TMZ reports. Gideon did it. Dad comes out, Gideon, you did this? All the townspeople are like, you know what? If Gideon did this, then he's got to die. Like, let's get him, lynch mob. His dad stands in between him and the lynch mob like a good father. and says, wait, 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 wait. You're, you're going to do all Baal's work? If Baal's really a god, why don't you let Baal take care of himself? He's a big, big boy god, right? People are like, oh, yeah, that's a good idea. You haven't seen Baal do anything yet. Why not now? Gideon got a new nickname. His new nickname is Jerubbabel, or Jerubbabel. In other words, like, cursed by Baal. He got cursed by the people saying that, that because he has done this, Baal's going to get him, but we know that that holds nothing, right? God's the one that's in charge of everything. Meanwhile, down at the ranch, the Midianites, the locusts, the Amalekites, we'll call them the termites, are joining forces for an invasion. And the spirit of the Lord, this is an important part of this, the spirit of the Lord, we're jumping down here to verse 34. I just summarized some for you. The spirit of the Lord clothed Gideon and he sounded the trumpet. Sorry, I was jumping down too far. Nope, that's it. There's so much in this text. I see you lose your, I got all these circles and highlights and underlines. Verse 34. Verse 33, so now all the Midianites and the Amalekites and the people of the east came together and they crossed the Jordan and camped in it. So this is the, this is the part where they're coming together. They're going to fight against Israel. But the spirit of the Lord clothed Gideon. So all of a sudden now the spirit of the Lord is there and he sounded the trumpet, this, the warning cry, and the Abizrites were called out to follow him. And he sent messengers throughout all Manasseh and they were called out to say, he's rallying the troops. He's saying, hey guys, hey guys, they're coming against us, but you don't, don't worry, I'm going to, by God's hand, deliver us. So the battle lines are forming. The Israelites are outnumbered. About 135,000 to 32,000, they're forming. Gideon, the man of faith and valor he is, is going to lead them to victory, correct? Incorrect. Once again, he stops and he's like, wait, 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 this is absolutely crazy. Ever been there? You know where God's leading you, you think, this is crazy, what am I doing? 
Gideon stops and he's like, just wait a minute, just wait a minute. I need some more assurance for, from the Lord. Notice this, Gideon's lack of faith again. And God's overwhelming assurance, verses 36 to 40. So he comes up with a plan. Gideon's like, I just gotta be sure, God. I gotta be sure, God. I gotta be sure. So he goes and gets a fleece and he takes it to a threshing floor. So now he finds the threshing floor. Hey, now he knows where it is. Puts it on there and says, okay, in the morning, if this fleece is wet with dew, but the ground around it is dry, then I'll know this is of God. In the morning comes, grabs a fleece, and he wrings out a whole, a whole bowlful, a whole bowlful of water. So he's like, that's pretty convincing. And yet he says, well, okay, okay, I, I heard you this time, God, but this is just, don't be mad at me, please, God. So he knows it's probably not the best thing to do, but please don't be mad at me, God. I never said those words. Please don't be mad at me, God, but one more request. Do it again, but the opposite. This time make the fleece dry and the ground wet. God does it again. I love how this even reminds us that even in our lack of faith and uncertainty, guess what? God still meets us in those places of our greatest need. The fleece in this text is not for guidance, but for confirmation. I believe what Gideon wanted was not like more guidance. Just confirm this to me, God. He didn't have the word of God to confirm. Just confirm this to me, God. Confirm this to me. Really echoing the words of Mark 9, Verse 24, I believe God. Help me in my unbelief. I believe God, but help me in my unbelief. And God's amazing grace says, yes. So that God enables the plan. Here's the plan to ensure, to ensure that he gets the glory. Stacks the odds against Gideon in such a remarkable way that there's only one way that this battle can be won, and that's with the Lord. 135,000 to 32,000, God, they're lining up, and Gideon's looking at it going, oh, I don't know, I don't know. God's like, hey, hey, you're not quite ready for battle yet, Gideon. Why don't you take your 32,000 people, your 32,000 troops, and anyone who's afraid of this battle, you can just send them home. Like, we don't need fear in the camp. Just send them home. So Gideon's like, hey, anyone afraid of the battle? Like, 22,000 guys put their hands up. All right, God says go home. So there's 22,000 guys skipping home to their wives and kids, you know, left with 10,000 people against 135,000 people. These aren't great odds. Gideon's like, okay, now, now for sure, God, this is what's going to happen, right? God's like, no, 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 we're not done yet. Take, take your troops now down to the river. And those who like, who like take the water and lap it to their mouths, you know, and cup it to their mouths, those guys versus the people who get down on all fours and like actually drink out of the water, like the ones who lap, those are the ones you're going to take to battle. What's the significance of this? Probably because the ones who are going to lap are the ones who are like, they're always on guard, right? They're like, okay, they're, they're ready, they're vigilant. The other guys are like, they're, they just want water. They're all faces in there. <laughs> like, you don't need those guys. They're clowns. <laughs> only 300, only 300 were the ones that actually brought, the vigilant ones, you know, that are like, okay, those guys are worthy of battle. So it's 135,000 versus 300. Like greater than St. Catherine's against this little room here. Notice how when God does something, it's always like he is going to get the glory and then we can't get the credit. God's victory can only be a God story, verses 19 to 25. God's victory can only be a God story, verses 19 to 25. 
And so as the story plays out, Gideon then is ready with his 300 guys. He sends a couple spies down to the edges of the, the camp and where the, the guys on the front lines are kind of getting ready for bed and they're telling stories at night. And one of them's like, man, I had a dream last night. I had a dream that this, 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 barley, this barley loaf kind of floated into our camp and destroyed us. Like, like barley loaf is not something you should be afraid of in anybody's kingdom or anyone's world. And the guy with him was like, that's weird. That's kind of shaky. I bet you it's Gideon. They'd heard of Gideon. They heard of the things he's doing. God, God, God's, not, God's got his name feared, but also Gideon. I bet you it's Gideon. The two spies hear this, send the word up to Gideon. Gideon's like, okay, for sure God's with us then. They're terrified of a loaf of bread. Probably describing the nature of the tribe of Israel. Nomads, nowhere to lay their heads. This weak little flimsy tribe. God says, yeah, that's right. Gave you that as a further assurance. Now here's the bottom line. Like, go do it tonight. So Gideon's like, okay, guys, here's the plan. Here's the plan. We're going to get our, our weapons in our hands. They're weapons. We're not spears and swords and, and shields. They're weapons. We're trumpets and a torch with a glass bottle on it. And the plan was to go at night and surround the camp with these 300 guys to smash their bottles blow their trumpets, and show their torches, and this is going to win the battle. I don't know about you, but I'd be like, no way. This is ridiculous. Maybe I'm a cynic. I don't know. Anyone else a cynic with me? I'd be running home. Can we have another like, vote to see who wants to go home with the other 22,000 guys? But they did it. They went down. They blew their trumpets. They sounded the battle cry, kind of like a rugby haka, you know, like they're, they're going after it. And the battle cry is, for Gideon and for the Lord. So much better than Deborah's battle cry. Remember hers? Up! <laughs> this is a battle cry, like, for Gideon and for the Lord. And, of course, they smash their bottles and their vases and the shout their screams and blow their trumpets. They're waking these guys up from a stupor and they're sleeping in their night and they're running around, they're killing each other. They start running, running right into an ambush as the guys, Israel, ambush them. And bottom line is they caught a couple princes, killed a couple others and won the battle. God's army wins again. If you look at chapter 8, which we're not even going to touch on today because it's already, uh, we need time for application here, but chapter 8, we see at the end of chapter 8 that there was a, a reign of 40 years of peace. Gideon died a godly legacy, and it is clear that God is still the God of his people. Despite their sin, despite their ups and downs, despite their lack of faith, God is still the God of his people and he delivers once again. God's the dynasty of all dynasties, let's be honest. And we see your sports dynasties. God's the dynasty of all dynasties because when God decides he's going to win, guess what? He wins. Every single time. Not always in the way that we think he should in our timing of the, think, uh, the timing we think he would. But every single time you can count on this about your God. If you're a follower of Christ, you can count on this, that God will deliver you every single time according to his good purposes. There's so much to learn from this. Hope you've been encouraged by just a recap of this amazing story. I love this story. There's so much to learn. I love it, not because of the historical facts and all the nuances of the ins and outs of what Gideon did and how he accomplished it, but because of this, because in this story, we see the reality of who God is in our lives. 
And we can expect God to work in the same way in our lives as he worked in the lives of the Israelites, even in Gideon's life. So here's some four quick applications just to, to, to give you something to grab your, your heart into as you leave here this morning, as you, as you wrestle with the text. And, and every time you read a biblical story, I want to remind you, you don't just read a story and say, hey, that's a cool story. You want to ask, like, what does this mean for me today? Here's the first thing it means for you and I today. Number one, I may be defeated, but God's never going to leave me there. I may be defeated, but God's victory is always close by. I may be defeated, but God's victory is always close by. Let's be honest, brothers and sisters, life is full of victories and defeats. It's the nature of the beast we call life. And you walk long enough and you'll find yourself many times in many places. And one of those times and places is going to be times of significant and serious defeat. Times where you feel like you are hiding in the shadows, afraid to pull your little head out so that anyone can see it. Times where you feel swarmed and oppressed by not just the enemy, but others around you. And, and times where you just feel like there is no hope. I feel like giving up. Times where you even get cynical like Gideon was. And like, I thought God was real. If God is so real, then where is he now? If God was truly on my side, do you think that this might not be the circumstance I find myself in today? Maybe it's because of your own sin, like the Israelites. Maybe it's not because of your own sin. We can't assume that everything of hardship is because of sin. This is a good place to start. Check your own heart. Maybe I have sinned, and God, you better show me that so I can rip down the, the bay on the Asherah poles in my life, the idols that I've formed, maybe unknowingly, but, but maybe it's not because of that. Maybe it's because that you've just found yourself in hard circumstances, and you started to believe that possibly God has left you. Here's a truth for you today, that you might be defeated, but God's victory is always close by for his children. Always. Throughout the scriptures, we see God's people defeated. This whole idea of you're never going to be defeated, that's not of God. That's of the enemy. This idea that's supposed to be easy and it's always supposed to be victory and everything you're supposed to touch is supposed to turn to gold. Eh, wrong story you're reading. Victory's a, defeat's a part of it, but victory's always close by. In God's word, he gives us oftentimes stories of those who are defeated and, and, and always what God wants to remind us in our defeats is that he will be the victor. Psalm 22, a messianic psalm talking about Jesus reminds us of this. I love this psalm too. It's, it, the psalmist is talking about the fact that he's being surrounded by wild bulls before the jaws of ravaging lions encircled by a wild pack of wolves, feelings of being poured out, bones wasting away, hearts melting, strength gone, tongue tied. I love it because I can relate. And yet verse 19 of this psalm, like the rest of scriptures, then in the, it acknowledges the human depravity factor, but it always points us to the God factor, which we can't minimize in no matter what circumstance we find ourselves in. Psalm 22 verse 19 says, in spite of all of these things, the lions and the bulls and the wolves and the body wasting away, it says this, it says this, these two words are so important, but you, O Lord, do not be far off, O you, my help, come quickly to my aid. Deliver my soul from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the mouth of the lion. You have rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. I will tell of your name. 
For he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the affliction and he is of the afflicted, and he has not hidden his face from him, but he has heard, get this, he has heard when he cried to him. Such a good reminder for us. God hears your cries in the hardest of afflictions. Do you believe that this morning? If you're there, probably not. Because we get so wrapped up in whatever's going on. So let me say it again uh, from your pastor, from God to you. If you're in a place of affliction today, even if it's because of your own sin, and you think that you've sinned too far now, and God will never turn his face to you again because you're so far gone, let me tell you this. If you turn to God, he will hear your cries and rescue you from even your deepest, darkest, most overbearing sin because that's the God that we serve. Amen? There is hope for you today even in your sin. Maybe it's not your sin. Maybe you find yourself in circumstances that marriages and finances and joblessness and whatever else. You can know this today. You can turn to God. You can cry to him. And he doesn't turn a deaf ear to the cries of his kids. He's not like me sometimes in my home. Stop crying already. God never says that. He meets you. He rushes to you. He gets to you in your time of greatest need. If you're in a time of affliction today, here's where you turn. You send an SOS up to God, even right now in your seat, and see how God is going to meet you there. If it's repentance, repent now in your seat. God hears. If it's desperation, be desperate in your seat. This is why God's brought you here today to hear a word that is going to remind you that God is still king. He's still king. I may be defeated, but God's victory is close by. Here's a second one. I may have nothing to offer, but God offers me a role in his mission. I may have nothing to offer, but God offers me a role in his mission. Gideon was as surprised by the call as you and I were because he had such a limited view of, of God first and foremost and what God could do in and through his life. Gideon was like you and I, weak and fearful and cynical at times, lacking faith. I know we like to say that, oh no, we're such big, strong men and women of faith and I want a pastor who's a man of faith. Okay, well then you've got the wrong church and the wrong pastor. Because the bottom line is we're all the same. We're all weak, broken individuals who need a big God. And our big God chooses to work in this world through people like us. To our amazement and his glory. This is how God works throughout the whole Bible. It's not just Gideon that he chooses in this one random act. Let's choose the weakest of the weak. This is how God chooses to work throughout the whole Bible. Listen to God's team in the Bible. You know if you're picking teams and you, you and your kids in the schoolyard and you're picking teams, you pick the best. You're like, yeah, I want you. Yeah, I want you. No, I want you. Here's how God, here's the opposite. He picks the least, the least expected. Well, this captain over here is picking the best. God's picking the worst. Listen to the people God used in the Bible. Moses. Moses stuttered. David's armor didn't fit. Elijah was a man just like us, which isn't a great thing, just to be honest. 
John Mark was rejected by Paul. Hosea's wife was a prostitute. Amos' only training was in this school of fig tree pruning. Jacob was a liar. David plotted a murder and had an affair. Solomon was too rich. Abraham was too old. David was too young. Timothy had ulcers. Peter was afraid to death. Lazarus was dead. John was self-righteous. Jesus was too poor. Naomi was a widow. Paul and Moses were both murderers. Jonah ran from God. Thomas was a doubter, as was Gideon. Jeremiah was depressed, and some suggest suicidal. Elijah was burned out. Martha was a worrywart. Paul despaired of life itself. It says it in the text. In the scriptures, Samson was so proud of his hair, of all things. Noah got hammered. Moses had a short fuse, as did Peter and Paul. Gideon was a yellow belly, couldn't fight his way out of a paper bag wuss. I read that some years ago. I don't know who even wrote that. I added the last sentence myself. but So applicable, isn't it? For any of you who think, ah, I'm just going to do my own thing because God will never use me. There's no point serving God. Think again. You're the exact person God wants to use on his mission because then you're not going to think it's all about yourself. You're going to be walking in your own pride. You're going to be humbly on your knees before God, calling out to him every day, God, I need you, I need you, I need you. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 26 to 29 tell us who God chooses. That, that's New Testament, not, not old, new. God chooses those who, are, those who are strong. No, he chooses the foolish to shame the wise. He chooses the weak to shame the strong. He chooses those who are low and despised nobodies to bring about God things so nobody can boast before the Lord. I know, I get it. We were told by the world, you gotta, you got to be your own person. you got to rise above. And you know what God says? Don't rise above. How about get below and see what I'm going to do? Satan's going to tell you all the time, you endeavor to do something good for God. Satan's going to tell you, you stink. You can't do it. God says, no way. You don't stink. I created you. I love you. I have a purpose for you. Satan's going to say, look at your mistakes. Look at all your failures. God's going to say, look at the cross. And see what Jesus has done. Satan's going to say, you can't do it. God's going to say, you're right, you can't. But with me, you can. I love how this whole text turns around with the verses that say, that, that describe the Holy Spirit being the difference maker. Old Testament, the Holy Spirit came on specific people in certain circumstances for, for intentional tasks. In the New Testament, the moment we accept Jesus, we all have the Holy Spirit living within us and coursing through our spiritual veins. The Holy Spirit is alive in us to allow us the strength and the competency to accomplish God's tasks. And that's the only way we can do it. Why do I like Gideon so much? Because we are all Gideon. I'm Gideon. And yet look at the promises in this text, 6 verse 12. The Lord is with you, mighty warrior. Verse 14, go in the strength you do have. Am I not with you? In other words, I'm going to give you the rest. Verse 16, I will be with you and you will strike down the Midianites. Verse 23, peace, be not afraid, you won't die. God empowers us to accomplish his mission to liberate souls. As Gideon liberated the Israelites, we are called to liberate souls, to serve and to, and to share and to save in Jesus Christ. We're all Gideons. God's recruiting you today for his mission. Our only response is, ought to be like Isaiah's. 
here I am. Send me to my family, to my workplace, to my community. Here I am. Send me. God might not do it as you expect. God might not do it as you've experienced before, but God will do it for his glory. Here's the third thing. I'm to trust God rather than put God to the test. I'm to trust God rather than put God to the test. I have heard this passage cited so many times in my office of, of I'm just trying to know God's will, and so I put my fleece out and nothing happens, so God's not guiding me. I want to clarify for you what this text actually means instead of what you have come to think it means at times. God wants us to walk in him and to trust him rather than put him to the test. Somehow in today's culture, we all want signs, right? I want a sign. I want a sign. The word of God says it, but I want a sign. Give me a sign. Give me a sign. Sometimes not even wrong motives. We just want to know from the Lord and follow the Lord, yet, yet I don't think that this text is really um, showing us how we're supposed to live our lives for the glory of God in a way that's going to honor the Lord. Remember, sometimes the Bible shows us what happened, not what should have happened. Even if Gideon was, was looking at this as a confirmation of God, look at all the confirmations he needed. Look at all the confirmations he needed. He, he got spoken to by the Lord. He, he had fire in front of him from his, his meat and his bread. And then he, then he tore down the poles and God protected him. And then the fleeces. And then the, another assurance of, of the, his soldiers going and getting the dream vision and Man, don't you think it would have been better off if he would have simply just walked by faith and not by sight? I just wanted to remind you, this is not a way we're supposed to live our lives. This is the way that God is, still God's gracious to us in our times because we're all human. We all tend to doubt and have fear and, and ask for God for affirmation. Yet, here's what God would rather desire of us. He'd rather, us to, rather, he'd rather desire us that we just simply take him at his word and walk by faith and not by sight. You can put your winter fleeces away now after reading this passage and save them for fall. You don't have to get them out now and put them on your back porch. God's already given us everything we need to know in his word and he promises to guide us every step of the way. Think about it. The fleece thing is so faulty anyways. When was the last time you prayed? Well, God, if it rains tomorrow, then I know for sure that it's your will. The person next door is praying, God, if it's sunny tomorrow, I know it's gonna be your will. We have all these little ways to seek God's will instead of getting on our faces and getting our Bibles open, getting Christians around us who love us, who will tell us the truth, and even like it was a little at times, which we all need, myself included. And instead we go to all these hokey pokey things of like, oh man, if they walk by me today in the schoolyard and, and smile, then that's the one I think I'm going to marry. Give me a break. <laughs> but they ran by me and ran right by me. Yeah, they, had bad, they had bad Doritos for lunch and we get into all these superstitious, all these weird sort of things. And how many people have I talked to that are like, well, why did you make this decision? Because I was praying one night and, and the little star shot across the sky. And really? You based your life decisions on that? Weird. Here's a reality in the scriptures, just to balance this text out so you don't think I'm making stuff up. Deuteronomy 6.16 and Luke 4.12, both say basically the same thing, one in the Old, one in the New Testament. Do not put the Lord your God to the test. To test, naka, means to try or to tempt. 
Like, don't put your God to the test. Instead, Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, which we quote as little kids, but then struggle to apply as adults sometimes. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean into him and don't trust your own understanding, but lean into God and he will direct your paths. Truly, you know how God wants us to make decisions? To pray our hearts out. Well, I prayed for a day. I prayed for a week and nothing happened. Maybe he wants you to pray for more than a day and more than a week. And maybe it's going to be a year. Maybe it's going to be two years. But man, are you going to learn and grow in that year or two? How about getting in God's word and just focusing on, for the time being, exactly what you're supposed to be doing according to God's word rather than what you maybe think you should be doing or what you might ought to be doing. Just, just live out the Bible. Just be as authentic and real of a believer as possible, trusting that God is going to guide your steps as he leads you, as you just simply honor him and follow him. What about getting other people's advice? I know in today's day and age, it's like, no, it's, uh, I'm my own person. I don't need anyone else. We need each other. Okay, so that, you, you need other people. You do. You're not supposed to do this alone. Maybe part of the reason you're having trouble with discernment is because you're trying to do this all by yourself. And, but anytime someone comes into your life to give you ideas or opinions that are contrary to what you think, you, they don't know. They don't know me. They don't walk in my own shoes. But maybe God's put them there on purpose to, to keep you and to protect you and to help you not make silly mistakes like we're all prone to make. Applications. I'm to trust God. Rather than putting God to the test, can I just remind you how trustworthy God is? Look at, look at Gideon's life. Look at Gideon's life. He protected him in the pit. He protected him on the battlefield. Should have been killed by the people in the village because he uh, came against their God. They cursed him. Drubbable. They cursed him. He is still alive and kicking to lead his people, God's people into battle. God is faithful to the very end. You can, you can, can I tell you this? You can trust him today. You can simply trust him today. Save your fleece. Put it back in your closet. Trust God. Here's the last one. Jesus is my ultimate hero of heaven. Jesus is my ultimate hero of heaven. Ultimately, this passage, yeah, there's good principles for us to learn. There's good things to apply, but get this. This whole passage is actually not even about us. Yes, we can learn from Gideon, but you know what? You and I are not Gideon, ultimately. This whole passage is here to point us to the true hero of heaven, Jesus Christ. Gideon is actually a foreshadowing of Jesus. Well, how do you find that? Because I read passages like Philippians chapter 2 and tell, that tell us that, that Jesus actually made himself what? Nothing. Taking the very form of a servant, being obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Jesus is the ultimate, in this world's eyes, Jesus is the ultimate zero to hero. When he came to earth, the earth tried to uh, put him aside. They tried, we tried to kill him. We tried to abolish the earth off him. And yet Jesus is the ultimate hero of heaven. He died on the cross for our sins. He rose again from the grave that we might have eternal life. And he reigns in the glories of the heavens forever. Jesus is our ultimate hero that we look to today. Listen to this poem that we usually read at Easter, but it's so applicable today I couldn't pass it by. And let me leave you with this thought. One solitary life. Jesus is our ultimate hero of heaven. Here's Jesus, born in an obscure village, the child of a peasant, he grew up in another, another village where he worked in carpenter shop until he was 30. Then for three years, he was an itinerant preacher. He never wrote a book. He never held an office. He never had a family or owned a home. He didn't go to college. He never lived in a big city. He never traveled 200 miles from the place where he was born. He did none of the things that usually accompany greatness. 
He had no credentials but himself. He was only 33 when the tide of public opinion turned against him. His friends ran away. One of them denied him. He was turned over to his enemies and went through the mockery of a trial. He was nailed to a cross between two thieves. And while he was dying, his executioners gambled for his garments, the only property he had on earth. When he was dead, he was laid in a borrowed man's grave through the pity of a friend. And yet 20 centuries have come and gone. And today, he's a central figure of the human race. Today, he's a central figure of the human race. I am well within my mark when I say that all the armies that ever marched, all the navies that ever sailed, all the parliaments that ever sat, all the kings that ever reigned put together have not affected the life of man on this earth as much as this one solitary life. James Allen Francis, what a way to end. No one has ever affected the life of man on this earth as much as this one solitary life, Jesus Christ. And so today, the call is ultimately this, to surrender, to give your life fully for the first time or maybe again to the Lord Jesus Christ and see how he will change you forever from the inside out. Let me pray. Father, thank you for stories like this that you put in your word to remind us of who we really are compared to who you are. To point us to the glory of God and the wonder of Jesus Christ. Father, I pray for those today that are here that we would all turn our eyes to Jesus, that we'd fix our eyes on the wonderful face of Jesus as the song says that the things of this earth right now would just get strangely dim that they wouldn't matter, that they wouldn't count, but you, oh God, would be our everything in this moment through your son. Father, for those walking in here defeated, oh God, would this be an encouragement today? God, would they call out to you and you show them victory, God, whether it's over sin or circumstances, God, show them victory in their lives, I pray. God, for those that are doubtful that you could ever use them or want to use them, would you erase that lie of Satan right now, Father? Would you show them that, God, that you love them so much, you died for them, and their life now, God, is not to be lived for themselves, it's to be lived for you, for your purposes and for your glory, that souls might be liberated forever. Father, would you spur us all onto your mission as inadequate and insufficient and insecure as we are? Put the call in our hearts again, God, to live in mission with you. Give us faith. I identify with Mark 9, 24. I believe, but help me in my unbelief, oh God. Maybe not play with the fickle things of trying to discern whether you're in something or out of something. May we be steadfast in your word. May we be prayer warriors for Christ. May we surround ourselves with godly people. God, would we seek you and you alone today by faith. And ultimately, God, I pray that Jesus would reign in every one of our hearts. You're what we need the most, Jesus. We don't need more moral lessons, although they're good. We don't need more encouragement, although we do. We don't Need another shot in the arm of challenge, but we do. But ultimately, God, what we need is you. We need you, Jesus, to reign over our lives yet again. Oh, Father, would you take this message, your words, your voice, pound them into our souls, massage them into our souls. That we might have heard truly what you want us to hear today. Amen.